Hello and welcome to another episode of the EcoThreads podcast, where we explore sustainability and its intersections with different social movements and issues. I'm your host, Greta Jennings, a high school senior dedicated to educating myself and others about the expansiveness of sustainability as a concept and a lifestyle. Today's interview serves as a beginner's guide to environmental justice, exploring the climate and health issues faced by overburdened and marginalized communities and the comprehensive and inclusive strategies used to combat them. There were some technical issues during the interview, so I apologize for the poor sound quality in some parts. With that, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I'm incredibly excited to introduce this week's guest, who's an expert in environmental justice, climate action, and community engagement. I've covered environmental racism and justice in a past episode, and so I'm delighted to welcome Chris Tendazzo of the New Jersey Environmental Justice Alliance to provide more insights. Founded in 2002, the NJEGA is an association of New Jersey-based organizations and individuals committed to creating healthy, sustainable, and just communities by eliminating environmental injustices in low-income and communities of color. Chris has worked for the NJEGA for the past three years and currently serves as a statewide environmental justice organizer. They also hold a master's of science in environmental policy and sustainability management and a graduate minor in impact entrepreneurship from the new school. Without further ado, Chris, welcome to the show. Hello, hi, thank you for having me here today. So I know in that introduction, I obviously mentioned a little bit about NJEGA's mission, but as someone who is on the team and, and very involved in those events, I was wondering if you could provide or sort of elaborate on, on what I've said and, and discuss some of the notable achievements and goals of the organization. Yeah, for sure. Thank you again for having us. Um, as you mentioned, we are a statewide environmental justice organization. We are um, one of the few environmental statewide environmental justice um, orgs in the state that we lead with environmental justice communities. Um, and uh, it's, uh, uh, we're also like the only um, statewide EJ org that has a staff that's fully diverse, the staff that comes from the communities impacted. Our main two branches are policy and organizing. And we support um, communities through technical assistance, organizing, training, and policy advocacy. We support folks in um, their efforts to rebuild their impact in neighborhoods um, by ensuring that we are um, putting their vision and perspective at the lead and how things should be moving in their communities. We have been around for 22, 23 years now. And we have been kind of reborn in the last three, three, four years when I started working because uh, we didn't have infrastructure. And so it's really been a, a really last three years of growth, uh, building the support and capacity that an environmental justice organization kind of needs to be able to do the work that we do at the state, at state level. One of our most notable achievements, I would say, in the last couple of years was the passing of the environmental justice law. Um, it is the strongest environmental justice law in the nation. Um, New Jersey is the first state to do it, and um, we have been pioneering this th um, throughout the country. We have been reached out by other um, communities, environmental justice communities, and particularly from other um, states around the country, reaching out to see how they can pass their own environmental justice laws in their communities and support their efforts over there in different places. I don't know, it feels great uh, to be part of an organization that's leading that kind of work um, at the state level, but also um, supporting other partners throughout the country. 
we didn't do this alone and none of this work is ever done alone. We did this in collaboration with other organizations, Clean Water Action New Jersey and the Southwest Environmental Justice Alliance and um, Ironbound Community Corporation, which are our partners in developing, we're our partners in developing the passing of the law and also the regulations. It's great to hear so much about how the organization's growing, definitely, and how you guys too are working with, you know, other states trying to increase these actions. Now that we've spoken a little bit about the organization as a whole, you mentioned these two branches, sort of policy and organizing. So being the statewide environmental justice organizer, what are your specific responsibilities and tasks? Yeah, so I've been in different roles at the organization um, and I'm now in the organizing role, which has been really, um, been really rewarding and promising because I, I get to see what goes on on the ground and how that kind of like um, the build up from that into policy um, has been. Uh, it, it's a it's a really great experience to witness that transition. For me, in particularly, um, my main role is really to connect with other environmental justice groups. Um, communities and organizations that are around the state um, um, and they don't necessarily have to be environmental justice organizations. They can be like social justice um, work, um, uh, workers, uh, rights related, um, religious groups. Um, we approach anybody that wants or needs help within an environmental justice community and we connect with them, we build relationships with them and we listen and we try to figure out what it's uh, what the needs are in that community. And based on what the needs are, we come back with the proper resources if we are able to. Usually the case is that community is ready to act and they just need the resources to act on and they don't have what they don't know what to do. Um, and that's where we come in or I come in um, to support them in that with the goal of making uh, of supporting them so that they themselves can um, self-advocate so that they can learn the tools to do that and like skills to advance community-led campaigns that are led and designed by themselves. Um, we do like, we host like community workshops, community uh, uh, like film sessions, like film series where we bring in community, invite them to the space. Um, and on the, uh, and we try to engage communities where they are. We go throughout the state. We don't like stay in one place. We try to like go to different places. So we're making sure that we have everybody um, uh, on board and that we're not just leaving folks out. I don't work in the policy aspect of our organization, um, but it is connected with with organizing. And um, for us, like there's no way to pass policy, strong policy without a strong backing of community. I also advocate for local and statewide policies and alternatives to incineration, for example, and other waste infrastructure in New Jersey by either going to develop, developing testimony to submit at a hearing, writing up comments, reaching out to community members, and bringing the stories and um, perspectives from our communities to the policy aspect, but it's usually not brought into. I've been... Uh, lucky to be seen as an expert in my community in this field. I got invited to um, testify at a Senate hearing in D.C. last year um, 
on the impacts of plastic pollution and environmental um, on environmental justice communities. And we were able to bring, I was able to bring our stories from like our local experiences to the national level so that folks know that like these issues are not happening siloed in like specific places, it's happening everywhere and it's happening systemically. Yeah, it's great to hear, especially how you, not only are you, you fighting for these communities, but also like listening to their stories. And I think that's really important. And then when you talk about bringing um, that, those stories and also your own to DC, I think is, is really special. And that is one part of the organization that I really admire is that so many of the team members come from different backgrounds or from different communities that have influenced their work. In that regard, how have your own experiences with environmental injustice shaped your work, advocacy, and worldview today? Well, if I'm being honest, it has shaped my life in so, so many different ways that for a long time I wasn't aware of. I didn't know that I was experiencing or living in an environmental justice community until like 2018. It was in 2018 when I started grad school and I started this um, the program in environmental policy and sustainability management. And the chair of that program, um, Ana Baptista, Dr. Ana Baptista, became like a mentor for me. And she took me under her wing and shared all of the injustices that um, I have been experiencing living in Irvington, New Jersey. She was born and raised in Newark, so we're kind of neighbors um, in that sense. So when uh, when she when I told her like, oh, I'm from Irvington, um, she was like, oh, like that's a big Asian community, and I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> it's an Asian community um, because at that until that point, um, we and the folks that live in our communities, like we nor we have normalized the levels of pollution so much that we don't even see it as an injustice anymore. So we're just blindly living in norm in like what we think is normal. Um, but in reality, it's a big injustice. Um, and I think that was like the first shock for me, for me to realize uh, and understand really where a lot of the things that I have been experiencing came from. Um, I have really bad congestion issues. I've always had congestion issues. And it always gets worse every time that I come back here to Jersey. I'm Ecuadorian. When I visit Ecuador, like, I'm breathing fine. But the moment I land in Newark, I'm just, like, clogged. I can't mm -hmm. breathe well. Um, and that has stayed consistent for as long as I've lived here in the States. Um, and I've never, I never really understood the correlation and the links between um, the factories and the um, the metal facilities, the recycling facilities, the waste infrastructure that's sited all over my uh, my neighborhood uh, in Irvington. So when I found out, I felt like it was like a very it, it, like again, it was a shock that um, made me really frustrated. Um, because how come we have been living here so long and none of this information was available to us? How come we've been experiencing these things and nobody has come to do anything to try and fix it? Why haven't the governments uh, or local governments tried and do something to fix it? Um, so it really propelled me to become even more active. Like I was um, organizing and doing activism uh, in support of um, indigenous folks fighting against the Dakota Access Pipeline when the Stanley Rock movement come, came up in 2016. This, when I realized like what was happening to me, I was like, okay, no, like I have to do something. 
so it really um, shifted my perspective and like where my energy and my capacity were going. Because then I learned of how global environmental injustices took place. And then I learned how my communities back home in Ecuador had been an environmental justice community for so long too. So it was just like so much shock of like learning and becoming aware and cognizant of the issues that I had been experiencing so, for so long. Um, and that really like made me, geared me really into justice, into a justice-centered um, approach. And it also brought me back to reconnecting with my indigenous roots and how um, that reconnection has really brought up a sense of um, uh, recognition of my uh, upbringing in Ecuador, being so closely connected to um, the natural environment that was always so present and I was always really exposed to. So to me, this this has become a, a struggle to um, for for the land, for our environment, but also for the health of our peoples. So it's not just, you know, the peoples that I'm worried about or what I'm fighting for. It's also our planet and that our, our lands that have been historically damaged by the climate crisis and it continues to happen. So yeah, that's how I'm, I'm here now. Yeah, I think that that journey is like so fascinating to me. Like you bring up congestion being in Newark and, and not really knowing like where that issue came from, but then finally kind of getting the answers that you deserve, obviously. And mm. now you're able to work to help other people who, you know, might not also be aware of those same impacts and, and what they're facing. Before we go further, you talk a lot about environmental justice communities. So that's a really big part of the organization. So what factors go into identifying an environmental justice community or an overburdened community? Yeah, so I can answer that question in two different ways, the legal and the community aspect of it. Right now in New Jersey, we have the environmental justice law. So within the law, we were able to define what an environmental justice community is. So there is a legal definition of what an environmental justice community is. The name was just changed from Egypt community to um, overburden community, an OBC. So that's the legal aspect. But an Egypt community is a community that um, has been historically uh, neglected and um, sacrificed through zoning and land policies that are based on systemic racism that have, that allowed polluting industries, industrial development to take place within the same zones where uh, black and brown people were living. For us, uh, an Asian community is a black and brown community that is burdened by the impacts of pollution throughout the state or anywhere really. But we also consider low-income folks because we know that there's a, there's a class uh, difference here in the States and then we have low-income white folks that are also living in environmental justice communities. Uh, for example, in um, the South, we have um, folks in Kentucky uh, that work in coal mines. They're an environmental justice community, um, but they're white. So we have like kind of that keen awareness that not all Egypt communities are black and brown, but at least 90% of them are. So for us, like we assess it that way, like what is the level of resources that an Egypt that a community has? Like, are, is your local government supportive of you or not? Are your taxes higher, lower? Um, is your income bracket higher, lower? So those kind of things kind of keep in mind as to like how we assess uh, the situations with different communities. 
But at the state level and at the policy level, an OBC is an overboarding community. It has specific criteria. Um, at least 35% of the households qualify as a low-income community. At least 40% of the residents identify as a minority or member of a state-recognized tribal community. And 40% of the households have limited English proficiency without an adult that speaks English very well, in quote, according to the U.S. Census. Um, and this is based on census block groups. So census block groups are the smallest way to look at a neighborhood or a community. And we did this because we recognize that the whole neighborhood doesn't experience the same injustice. That there's different levels of pollution that happen in different areas of the, of, of the neighborhood. Um, and census blogs help us um, uh, recognize and look at where the majority of impact is and where it's needed the most. And if that community is recognized as an overburdened community, the EJ law gets triggered and whatever facility tries to get into that community, they can't. Or like they have to go through a process and that process will obviously... Um, it, it prioritizes uh, community involvement and perspective of how the, uh, the permitting should go forward. I find that really fascinating too, especially like both hearing you talk about it sort of in like a, a qualitative way, but also that there are these specific conditions that like a community has to meet. And I'm also really glad that you brought up issues of environmental racism, as that's really what I want to talk about a lot as well. I previously did an episode on this, and one of the things that I mentioned was the Canadian wildfires. And I know that you guys do a lot of work on air pollution. So just kind of seeing how both race and class can play a role in increasing someone's exposure to environmental hazards. And I'm sure that this next question it would take way too long to answer in, in this interview in full. But I just wanted to ask anyway, what are your thoughts on, you know, how systemic racism exacerbates the impacts of environmental issues like climate change for marginalized groups? And then sort of two part, then how does the NJEGA try and address those inequities? Yeah, definitely like a long answer for that <laughs> question. Uh, but thank you for that. I think for that, um, we have to keep in mind the ways in which systemic racism has already been impacted the livelihoods of Black, Indigenous, and people of color um, for generations in this country uh, with redlining policies, segregation policies, displacements of Indigenous peoples from their lands for um, to develop fossil fuel projects, anti-immigration policies. Um, so all of these are already bringing such a burden to Black, Indigenous, and people of color. This burden shows you how much a community is able to withstand heavy impacts. Some of these communities have low amount of resources. They don't have a lot of um, financial resources uh, at the government level to uh, to meet the needs of the community um, at any point. And it has been proven to be that for the last couple of generations. And when you think about, when you keep that in, in mind, keep in mind how all of that is already happening. And now you have a climate crisis, a climate crisis with impacts, um, climate events that severely in, um, create economic loss and um, health uh, has health and economic um, impacts and loss for communities, based on how systemic racism has operated within the country, you will be able to tell which communities 
are going to be impacted by uh, more than which communities are, are going to be impacted uh, more than uh, as opposed to other communities. Um, environmental just communities are going to they're not only going to receive the burden of the impacts because we don't have the infrastructure necessary to withstand them. We also don't have the resources to come back from it as opposed to more affluent communities, rich white communities in different areas of the state where when they uh, experience a climate event, they can easily come back. Um, they can easily come back, the economy comes back, the livelihoods come back, the health systems come back. But that's not the same for envir environmental justice communities um, and black and brown communities in general throughout the country. So when we are thinking about climate justice, we have to think about racial justice. We have to think about the ways in which um, the systems that have been in place are gonna have a detrimental impact on how, on the resiliency of um, Asian communities amidst the climate crisis. And hence why for us, we, our focus is on Asian communities because we know that they don't have the resources that they need because we're from those communities. We recognize that there is a priority in supporting environmental justice communities with anything. Um, that is how we approach it. We address um, this, um, this issue of inequity by providing the resources, um, at least for, within the capacity that we have, to those communities so that when those events happen, they have the resources to be able to come back up. When um, the wildfires happened in Canada and the sky got orange here in Jersey, we had to provide like a lot of different types of information um, to different um, community members. We sent email blasts to our members, like don't go out this time, don't go out during that time. Um, but that was also the first time that as an organization, we experienced a, this type of climate event. So we are internally preparing for, um, so how we're gonna be um, acting when it comes to um, climate events in future uh, climate catastrophes that are bound to happen. Um, so we're not saying that when, like if they happen, but when they happen, it's better for us to be prepared um, on how to support communities whenever these impacts happen. Um, we weren't as prepared for when the fall fires came, but so but that gave us a perspective into really like recognizing the need that there is on information, on resources, masks, like what kind of masks people should be wearing outside, what you shouldn't be doing, what you should, uh, like how to build like air respirators and stuff like that. Um, there's a lot of tools available for folks um, that we um, actively bring out and like gather in our space and just share with everybody that is willing and wants to listen to us and uh, is a need for them. I really like that idea of resurgence that you're talking about. I think that's really important on how two communities might experience the same disaster, but not be able to combat it in the same way. So it's great to know that like the NJEGA is working to increase their resources of those communities. And of course, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been really great to hear your perspectives. I had one final question. If you're able to just share a little bit more about how people listening to this would be able to get involved to support and contribute to the organization if there are any upcoming projects or events that the NJEGA is hosting. Yeah, um, we're working on our stuff uh, on our calendar of events for, for this year. 
But this year, we are actually starting back up our membership. Um, so anybody that's listening to the podcast can sign up to be a member. You can be an organization, an individual. We haven't set up the system yet, but right now what you can do is like sign up to our mailing list, which you can find on our website. Um, and that way, that way you'll receive information when the sign up is ready to go for membership. We will have our first uh, member office hours. So we're hosting office hours this year, um, which could be like in quote, like could be considered member meetings. But the purpose of these office hours is to give space to community members, um, uh, organizational members, to bring uh, um, bring up any questions they may have, um, if they need to, if there's a concern or issue they need to like talk about it, um, you can bring it to those office hours and we will support you in whichever way that we have it within our capacity or if not, we'll send you to, to somebody that could help you with that. Um, and our first office hours is scheduled for February 15th from 6 to 8 p.m. And it will be virtual. So folks would be able to join uh, online. You don't have to go anywhere. For anybody that's in Jersey, we really encourage uh, folks to um, sign up to the membership and, um, and sign up to our email so you can stay in, in touch about what's happening. And we have a lot of events coming up this year. We will have voice justice workshops. We're going to have um, listening sessions for communities. We're going to have community events uh, that y'all are welcome to attend to. We would love to have you um, throughout the year. And it's going to be a lot, but as, uh, we're still in the planning process and we're putting everything on the calendar so that folks can know later on. But we'll have that soon. So folks, um, I think the best way to stay connected is either follow us on social media or sign up to, the, um, to our mailing list. Thank you so much for being here, Chris. I really appreciate um, you taking the time to share your insights. Thank you so much. No, of course. Thank you for having me. And I really appreciate um, the work that you are doing and for holding the space for these type of conversations so that they can keep happening. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. And I want to thank Chris once again for sharing their time and valuable perspectives. To find more information about the NJEGA, you can check the episode description below. If you like the episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends and family, and follow at ecothreads underscore podcast on Instagram and TikTok to keep up with any podcast-related news. The Ecothreads podcast is available on all platforms where you listen to your podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and more. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you back here soon.